Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society, or SILAS, at the University of Melbourne. And today we'll be discussing cause lawyering in Indonesia, or in broad terms, pursuing social change through the law. In particular, I'll be chatting with Dr. Tim Mann, editor of the Indonesia at Melbourne blog and associate director of SILAS, about Indonesia's longest standing cause lawyering organisation, the Legal Aid Institute, or LBH which was founded in the early days of Suharto's authoritarian regime in 1970. Tim wrote his PhD thesis on LBH, charting the evolution of the organization as Indonesia's political system has transitioned from authoritarianism to democracy and most recently has entered a period of democratic regression. How have LBH's lawyers pursued social change in circumstances where victory in the courtroom has often been highly unlikely? Did democracy open new opportunities for cause lawyering, and how has LBH responded as the quality of democracy has eroded and Indonesia's civil society at large took to the streets in 2019? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's episode. Just a quick note on terminology. Throughout the episode, we'll often use the ubiquitous Indonesian acronym LBH to refer both to the Jakarta-based umbrella organization, strictly called YLBH-E, and to its affiliated regional legal aid institutes. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Oh, it's a pleasure. A new experience for me to be on the other side or not behind the scenes of this podcast. Indeed, indeed. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you in front of a microphone. Now, could I start by asking you, you know, you've you've written this thesis on the Indonesian Foundation of Legal Aid Institutes, LBHE, and its regional offices, LBH. Essentially, it's a it's a thesis about cause lawyering in Indonesia. So, could I ask what is cause lawyering and how has LBH interpreted it? Sure, cause lawyering is a term that was first introduced by two U.S. Based scholars, Austin Sarad and Stuart Scheingold. And essentially, cause lawyering is about mobilizing the law to promote or resist social change. It's a term that is often inter- used interchangeably with a term like um, public interest law, or and it's similar to terms like activist lawyering, social justice lawyering, political lawyering. A really key element of the definition is a sense of moral or political commitment to a cause. So the cause lawyers like are lawyers who who see their role as existing beyond simply client service to the service of a cause. When Sarat and Shangold came up with the term, they they justified their preference for cause lawyering over public interest law because they felt that it avoided considerations over what is or was, what is not in the public interest. And so with that, that means that you can have conservative cause lawyers. If we 
look at an Indonesian example, Elbeha is obviously the oldest and most prominent cause lawyering organization, but you could arguably say that a group like ILA, the Family Love Alliance, is a cause lawyering organization. They have attempted to revise what well, they've challenged the criminal code, hoping to outlaw uh, all premarital sex. They are using the law for their version of, of change. It's just that they're a, their version of cause lawyering is a conservative one. Sure, sure. So, I mean, what was the context where El Beha was formed and how did that shape its understanding of what cause lawyering should be in Indonesia? El Beha was formed in 1970 under the under Suharto's New Order regime. And really, it was founded with the original goal of providing legal aid to poor and marginalised Indonesians. It started off as just a single office in Jakarta, and it now has 17 branch offices around the country, with Yelbehe as the, the central umbrella body. But even from those early days, it was never really just about expanding access to justice. Elbeha always saw its role in the legal aid movement as, as a key part of a, a wider struggle to limit state power at a time when the courts were largely subservient to the executive. Elbeha's leaders quickly realised that providing conventional legal aid under an authoritarian system would only end up legitimizing the status quo. So this led Elbeha to develop its own ideology of legal aid and activism, which it called structural legal aid. And this, this concept essentially held that legal aid should be directed at addressing the structural causes of inequality that were really at the root of many of the legal problems of the, the poor. And so structural legal aid also involved a shift from focusing on the problems of individuals to the problems of communities. And because the new order was considered to be the source of many of the problems of the poor, it was also a really a deeply oppositional approach to legal aid. Um, yeah, in practical terms, that meant that litigation was combined with a range of non-litigation activities like community organizing, community legal empowerment or, or community legal education, um, research, media campaigns, a whole range of other different non-legal approaches. And then we also saw that as the new order period progressed, Elbeha became even, even more political in, in its approach and it developed into a, like a hub of civil society resistance to the Sahado regime, like a gathering point for students, activists and other pro-democracy groups. And at one point, it even labelled itself a, a locomotive of democracy. So Elbeha's approach to cause lowering was this really distinctly political and, and oppositional one. I mean, are, are there any cases you could highlight that would give us a sense of the sort of work that Elbeha was doing uh, under the constraints of a repressive authoritarian regime? Even from its very 
early days, it began to get involved in community organizing work. Two of the really early and often cited cases that Elbeha was involved in involved the simple housing development in, I think, South Jakarta. It also assisted families that were evicted to make way for the Taman Mini Park in East Jakarta. Um, as the new order progressed, it was also heavily involved in the um, in supporting communities that were to be evicted for the Kedung Ombo Reservoir in Java. It was also involved in some really political cases, like um, they also defended activists who were accused of subversion after they established the Democratic People's Party, the PRD, in Jakarta in the, the late Suharto years. In almost all of these cases, Elbeha was quite aware that its hopes of success were virtually zero, but it used these cases in the very constrained environment of the new order to really bring rights issues and injustice to public attention and use the somewhat safer space of the courtroom to make these more firmer and sometimes more controversial arguments. Now, of course, we're, we're just past 24 years now since Sahado's authoritarian regime uh, suddenly toppled in May 1998. After close to three decades of that structural legal aid, confrontational cause lawyering uh, under authoritarianism, how did things change for Elbeha when Sahado stepped down and, and democratization commenced? Yeah, as you know, the fall of Sahado in 98 involved major changes in the institutional and political environment. And if you look at the literature on cause lawyering and legal mobilization, and I guess some empirical accounts from other countries, democratization is generally considered to provide a more favorable environment for cause lawyering. And the literature points to a range of different developments like the introduction of constitutional and other legal guarantees of rights, the establishment of constitutional courts or other forums in which these rights can be claimed, judicial independence, political openness and new legislative or bureaucratic channels where cause lawyers can collaborate with the government. And then broader issues like a, a strong civil society sector and free media. And there are others, but I, I mention all of those because the democratic reforms implemented in Indonesia after 1988 established these conditions or at least aspired to do so. So Elbeha was provided with a range of new legal and non-legal avenues to contribute to, to social change. For Elbeha itself, though, despite these developments ostensibly making things easier for it to contribute to social change, there's a general view that Elbeha really seemed to struggle following the democratic transition. Paradoxically, it seemed to be in a more difficult position 
following the democratic transition than it had been under Suharto. And my research looks at several reasons as to why this might have been the case. The first of these is that after the fall of Suharto, Elbeha faced an identity crisis. So much of its identity has had been kind of tied up in efforts to oppose the new order. So when the new order collapsed, it had to reassess its reason for being. As the state became more open, it had to decide whether it wanted to collaborate with the state or maintain this confrontational approach that it had built over several decades. Yeah, and many within Elbeha were, were really not inclined to strengthen the legitimacy of a state that they still viewed, and I think probably correctly, that they still viewed as the source of many of the problems faced by the poor. Another factor, another factor was funding. Following the democratic transition, foreign donors shifted focus. During the New Order period, donors had been quite happy to support Elbeha's oppositional approach to cause lawyering, but following 1998, they were more interested in funding governance programs and efforts to strengthen the, the institutions of the newly democratic state. And another factor connected to this was the opening up of civil society that occurred after 1998. So as you know, after 1998, we saw the establishment of a whole new range of human rights and law reform focused organizations. And some of these new organizations were a lot more happy about taking up more kind of accommodative forms of cause lawyering and working with the state on reform. Then the, the final factor that I talk about is connected to these issues. Elbeha also saw a lot of internal conflict, especially related to leadership transitions. And this ended up further discouraging donors and further weakened the organization internally in terms of its management and so on. Sure, sure. Now, that's quite a range of factors. Uh, I mean, if we could start from that identity crisis, you know, I, I guess in hearing you describe a debate over what the direction of the organization should be uh, in an organization suffering from leadership turmoil, it kind of makes me if the two were connected, you know, were there different camps within the organization pushing for different approaches? And, and if so, how, how was all of that resolved? That's true. There were different camps. There was this debate within the organization about the degree to which it should engage with the state. Some within the organization were quite happy to work with the state on policy formulation or even work directly with state institutions to strengthen their capacity. While others, particularly Elbeha officers in the regions, really struggled to move beyond this kind of highly oppositional approach that they developed under the new order. In terms of individuals, Perhaps the, the one that I think should be mentioned is the uh, former Ye'elbeha'i founder, Adnan Buyong Nasution. And in the, those first few years after the fall of Suharto, he really encouraged Elbeha to move back towards providing a, a more conventional style of legal aid and, and really 
abandon the really kind of political activist version of legal aid that they had used under the the new order. And controversially, he chose to defend General Wiranto and several other military figures who had been accused of human rights abuses during the, the turbulent period surrounding East Timor's independence vote. And this put him into conflict with many within El Beha. He was pretty unapologetic about this decision, even though his this decision was difficult for many to understand. He was motivated by attempts to promote a, a professional legal culture. So if we put it into terms of of cause lawyering, his cause was a very procedural one. It was the rule of law, strengthening the functioning of the legal system. And these are important goals in a newly democratic state. But he had kind of moved beyond the typical cause lawyering position of identifying with the cause of your clients towards what is really more like a mainstream legal professional understanding of of non-partisanship and like the taxi rank principle in in terms of taking cases on regardless of your your views on the clients in terms of how this identity crisis was resolved i think there will always be tension in Elbeha between lawyers who feel that the organization should focus more on litigation and others who who want it to play a more political role. I think one factor that has helped uh, help to put aside some of these questions is actually the democratic progression that Indonesia has seen over the past five to ten years. Uh, and that has really sharpened Elbeha's focus in terms of the kind of role that it should be playing under this environment. Sure, sure. No, and we'll we'll certainly get to um, Elbeha's role over over the past few years before we finish up our, our conversation today. Uh, I, I was fascinated though by your mention of the opening up of civil society, meaning that other cause lawyering or, or legal aid organisations also formed. Some of whom were more willing to work on strengthening state legitimacy, perhaps trying to strengthen the rule of law. How have those? dare I say, competitor organisations fared over the past couple of decades? Have, have they similarly endured or, or were they only active in the in the first few years of democratisation? Some of the, the organisations that I'm loosely referring to there would be like PSHAKA, the Centre for Legal and Policy Studies, LAPE, the, I think it's the Institute for an Independent Judiciary, MAPI, ICJR, all of those have have been well, particularly Pershaka, Lape were heavily involved with the Supreme Court in its reform efforts in those early years. And these are organizations that continue to be relatively popular among donors and as far as I know, are still a bit more willing to practice this kind of accommodative or form of cause lowering, a bit more willing to collaborate with the state on reform. I guess one point that's worth making about these other organisations, though, is 
a lot of them don't face the additional burden of service provision that LBH faces. They're a bit freer to work on research and legislative lobbying and um, policy formulation. And yeah, perhaps there is an element of LBH being on the front lines, particularly in the regions, that means that it feels that it's a little bit more difficult for it to to collaborate with the state than perhaps some of these other organisations. Sure, sure. And uh, I mean, what have been the key strategies that we've seen LBH adopt over the democratic era? So there are some strategies that that haven't changed as much. And I, I think obviously litigation will always be an important part of LBH's approach, defending criminal cases, whether it's affecting communities or individuals. When LBH does take on cases affecting individuals, it really does continue to try and connect them to higher level issues, whether that's like the principle of freedom of religion or freedom of expression or so on. It still does a lot of work around organizing communities, providing legal education in communities. But in terms of the new strategies that have come available, Elbeha has really been a leader in trying to establish a new tradition of strategic impact litigation at the Constitutional Court. So that is litigation that's aimed at changing law or policy to bring about broader social change. So um, a change that will have implications for a large number of people. So what, what would be some examples of some of the cases they've brought to the Constitutional Court with that aim? One of the most well-known is the book banning case. So Elbeha lawyers were involved in a challenge to the Attorney General's authority to ban books. The case was around 2010. And that was a, an example where they were successful. Another example where they were not successful was the challenge to the blasphemy law also in 2010. There were Elbeha lawyers involved in that case. So, I mean, beyond this strategic impact litigation uh, and then their ongoing provision of legal aid in cases that that concern communities or or have a broader relevance, uh, you mentioned legal education as well. Um, Are there other key areas that in which Elbeha has been active over the course of the democratic era? I think two interesting new approaches involve the use of the state administrative courts. These are courts that were established under the Sahado period, under the new order, but they really only became a viable forum for challenging government acts in the period after Sahato fell. And one prominent win that LBR recently had at the state administrative courts related to the internet shutdown in Papua. So you recall in 2019 when the anti-racism protests broke out across Papua, the, the government initially slowed and then cut off the, the internet completely. And, and this was challenged in the state administrative courts by LBH and, and a coalition of civil society organisations, and they they won that case as well. Another new strategy that they've used is citizen lawsuits and another very prominent case involved the Jakarta air pollution citizen lawsuit which they also won in late 2019 
2021. It seems to me the undertone or the the underlying message of taking on these cases is effectiveness is not judged simply by whether you win or or lose the day in court, but by the organization's broader goal of of social change. How uh, how effective have these various strategies been during the democratic era? Do you think uh, when we when we think about them in those terms? Yeah, that's a excellent point, and I think that that's how they often view these strategies themselves too. I think if we go back to the discussion on constitutional litigation, I think it's a really important way to legitimize or, or I guess give meaning to the new democratic constitution. If you think in an environment where there really isn't a huge amount of rights awareness among the public or even among some judges, this is a really important way to to give practical meaning to the new extensive right protections that are offered under the the amended constitution. Kind of like a, a way of demanding that the government live up to the promise of the amended constitution. It's also beyond beyond these kind of constitutional arguments, it's it can also be just a really important way of helping to consolidate civil society. Um, it, can, it can be a way of raising public awareness, bringing injustice to public awareness. And that can be a, an important human rights strategy in itself. What about, I mean, it's an interesting example, you cite the administrative court judgment finding that the shutdown of the internet in Papua was unlawful. In terms of a constraint on state power, uh, I mean, how likely would that be to constrain the Indonesian government from shutting down the internet again if the if the events of 2019 were repeated? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think this is a decision that also came, I think it was almost a year after the shutdown occurred. So it really... It, didn't have many practical implications, but I guess it puts civil society on on firmer footing when it wants to to criticise these decisions in the future. Um, it can refer to a legal judgment, and yeah, I, I completely acknowledge that it's probably the government may well circumvent this decision or just simply ignore it, but it does. Um, it does, in a in a sense, put civil society on stronger footing, on firmer ground when it wants to criticise these decisions in the future. You know, I, I guess you, you've mentioned a number of times that as democracy has regressed, certainly there's a widespread perception within Indonesia and, and amongst scholars of Indonesia that that has been the case, that, that LBR has changed tack somewhat. I guess in in the organization's view, where would they identify the starting point of that regression and, and how has it affected their activities? You already heard people from within Elbeha talking about democratic regression and they they were already saying things like we're seeing a reversion to practices that were common under the new order in about 2015. So this in the first years of the Jokowi government? Yeah, I, I would say that it's probably really stepped up since about 2017 within Elbeha and, and this 
over the past five years, they've really reverted to the really highly oppositional identity that they had forged under the new order. I think that they've they've come to the conclusion that they're better off standing on the side of justice seekers um, rather than trying to work with the government on um, and, and winning small concessions that may not end up being implemented anyway. It's, it's really decided to, to keep the state at arm's length. And that doesn't mean that it rejects the idea of collaborating with the legislature or the government on reform altogether. It's just not an approach that it really wants to take up itself. It's much more likely to leave that role up to its contemporaries in civil society and collaborate with them as part of a broader network. And I think that that is probably a reasonable decision for it to make. I don't think all organisations do have to work from, from the inside. Another really significant development over the the past five years is that despite the occasional wins it has had in the constitutional court or the administrative courts or so on, Elbeha has really developed a quite a degree of scepticism about the capacity or the ability of, of legal victory to really lead to significant social change. I think, as you kind of alluded to before, that they're, they're quite aware of the fact that the government may just simply ignore decisions that it doesn't want to follow. So that doesn't mean that it has given up on litigation as a strategy, but it's more likely to view the benefits of litigation as through its ability to catalyze community organizing consolidation of civil society, public education, and those various factors that we talked of before. I mean, it, it's interesting to hear you outline all those ways that, that LBH's approach has shifted, and I guess dating it to the start of the Jokowi administration. Uh, of course, many had highlight the so-called reform corrupted, reformasi decorupsi protests of 2019 as a moment when there was a broader public mobilization questioning the direction of the Jokowi government just after the government had passed legislation to weaken Indonesia's anti-corruption commission, the KPK, and also seemed on the verge of, of passing regressive amendments to the criminal code, although those weren't ultimately enacted. What role did LBH play in that protest movement? And, and did we see a further shift in its strategies as, as, as an organisation at the time? Yeah, it's really interesting that you you mentioned that. That was really a really surprising reversion to type that has also occurred over the past five or so years. I was in Indonesia doing my fieldwork at the time of the Reformasi Dikorupsi protests, and the Elbeha officers were like a hive of activity. They were holding press conferences almost daily, public discussions, there was efforts to bring civil society groups together and coordinate. Even the term reformasi de corrupsi itself was coined at a late-night meeting at the Yelbehai office in Jakarta. There was really a sense that Elbehai had kind of been reinvigorated by 
democratic progression and it was really attempting to play this kind of coalition building convening role that it had formally played under the new order. I think it was able to play this role because of its legacy as a as a hub of resistance to the new order. I think also the fact that it, it has been quite consistent working on issues of democracy and human rights throughout the last 20 years meant that it, were, it was also seen as a relatively neutral gathering point by a lot of civil society. I don't think, um, I wouldn't want to say that it was the leading organisation. There were plenty of other organisations that were heavily involved at the time, but it, there was this kind of shift and a, an attempt to bring civil society groups together. Now, I mean, when we look back at now two and a half decades of LBH's operations under under democratized Indonesia, under democratic Indonesia, what can we learn from their experiences about the, the state of the rule of law in Indonesia and its limits? I think I might start by us answering this question a bit more broadly and, and say that the one of the the key lessons of LBH's experience over the past two decades, is that I guess there's a need to be realistic about what can be achieved through formal institutional change, and particularly in post-authoritarian states like, like Indonesia, where the rule of law has yet to be, to be really established. So as I mentioned at the start, cause lawyering and legal mobilisation literature they might emphasize these legal opportunity structures as providing more opportunities for cause lawyering, like constitutional guarantees of rights, constitutional courts, and so on. But in a country that's transitioning to democracy, like Indonesia, the the presence of these appropriate institutional structures is really not enough on its own. There's a need to pay more attention to the the quality of democracy, the quality of the rule of law when when you're thinking about lawyering and democratization. It's a fascinating point you highlight that, you know, the presence of democratic institutions does not in itself guarantee favorable outcomes. And of course, uh, in the analysis of Indonesian politics, it's, it's been this presence of a class of oligarchs, uh, people who have accumulated massively disproportionate wealth through political connections and then use that to exercise political power, who various scholars highlight as distorting the functioning of those institutions. I mean, how has LBH sought to counter that sort of oligarchic domination and, and how effective has it been in doing so? I guess LBH's approach to the growing power of oligarchs has been this renewed focus on structural legal aid, a, a stronger emphasis on the community organising, the community legal empowerment aspects of legal aid, and also, as we just talked about, this emphasis on trying to consolidate, bring civil society together. I think realistically, yes, as you hinted at, uh, civil society and LBH has not been very effective in the face of oligarchic power. If we look at the outcomes of the Reformasi de Corrupsi protests, the protests against the omnibus law on job creation, civil society has not been very effective in stopping these changes from going ahead. But I think however 
weak or fractured or ineffective civil society is in the face of oligarchic power. It really is the only kind of form of resistance to oligarchic power that there is in Indonesia at the moment when there's no real elite resistance to democratic progression. Groups like Elberham are really important in offering a counter discourse when there is no other form of counter discourse being offered. I mean, you mentioned the Reformasi di Corupsi protests in themselves were, were not particularly effective in, in constraining the changes to the legal system, to legislation that the government was making. I mean, are there examples you could highlight where LBH and, and civil society has been more effective in sort of countering or, or preventing the outcomes that oligarchs were seeking? I think you could point to the criminal code, um, the protests against the criminal code in 2019. The Reformasi de protests were effective in ensuring that those changes didn't go ahead. Having said that, there is a very strong likelihood that these changes will go ahead within the next month or so. So, yeah, that remains to be seen with, in that example. Another more local level example that I could point to is the Kundung Farmers case. So people are probably familiar with this case involving plans to establish cement mines and factories in two districts of central Java, Rumbang and Pati. And these are the protests that eventually led to farmers casting their feet in cement blocks in front of the presidential palace. So there are actually two companies involved in this case. And in Rumbang, the community was successful. They won their case and the environmental license was cancelled. But you might recall that the government that just went ahead and issued a, a new license anyway, and the factory has gone ahead. In Pati, however, the community ended up losing their case at the Supreme Court. But the lengthy legal process, the community organizing work, the protests, it eventually led to this project becoming politically controversial enough that it didn't end up going ahead. So I think we could point to that as an example where the the structural legal aid approach has been relatively effective in achieving its goals. Now, I mean, finally, if I were to ask you to turn to crystal ball gazing, what do you see the future holding for, for LBH? I think as a legal aid organisation, it's always going to have a very important role to play and potentially even more so in an environment of democratic progression. It's always going to have a critical role in expanding access to justice, ensuring that people are safe during police questioning and throughout the investigation and trial process. I think in terms of its broader political role, I, I think Alberta would would certainly be reluctant to call itself a locomotive of democracy now. But it, it's pretty clear that it it does come to life when its cause is democracy and the rule of law. It really seems to have found its place again as 
democracy in Indonesia has begun to unravel. I think obviously the situation is quite different now than it was 20 or so years ago. And so El Baha is never going to play the, the same kind of prominent role as it did under the new order. But I think it, it probably will continue to have this important convening coalition building role in civil society while also continuing to defend poor and marginalized Indonesians and hold the state to account. Sure, sure. Now, Tim, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Um, certainly have to keep an eye on the on the future development of LBH and keep an eye out, of course, for your, your various writings, uh, including, I hope, a, a book on the subject coming out over the next few years. But thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today to share your insights. Thanks so much, Dave. It was fun. Cheers. That was Dr. Tim Mann, editor of the Indonesia at Melbourne blog and associate director of the Centre for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society, or SILAS, at the University of Melbourne. Talk Indonesia returns on 4 August with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, you can access the entire archive of Talk Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.